off trail learning. This is Blake Bowles. Before we get to today's guest, I want to share a few announcements. I just published my first Unschool Adventures group trip for teenagers in quite a while. It's called Humans of Mexico, and it's a six-week trip that leaves in early 2022, and I will be one of the trip leaders. I'm very excited for this trip. If you want to apply, those applications are now open, and you can go to unschooladventures.com to learn more. Also on Unschool Adventures, uh, there is a new program I'm developing, which I'm calling Free Range Exchange. It's a homestay and exchange program for North American teenagers to go to Europe and hopefully other places later and possibly have teenagers from those countries come back and stay with you in North America. And so I've developed a survey. If you're interested in this opportunity, go to unschooladventures.com and fill out the survey and tell me what you're looking for. It's been about a year since my most recent book came out, Why Are You Still Sending Your Kids to School? And I'm happy to announce that uh, it's been selling well, and there's lots of reviews on Amazon, over 75 at this point, which is way more than any of my other books, which have been out for much longer. And so uh, thank you for supporting the book. Uh, If you have suggestions for guests for this podcast, um, you can always directly email me at yourstruly at blakebowles.com. If you want to support this show, there's many ways you can do it. You've, you're probably familiar with these ways. You can leave a review. Apple Podcast seems to be the best place to review the show. And so leave some nice words of support or, or a little bit of one-star hatred. You know, just be honest. That's all I ask. And also, I'm now accepting coffee donations. If you love this show, if you love the other stuff I put out for free online, like my email newsletter, you can go to blakebowles.com coffee and buy me a coffee. Thank you very much. Last but not least, I will be in South Lake Tahoe, California for most of the summer through September. If you're in the area, feel free to drop me a line and say hi. I love meeting people, and the world is now getting to a point where that's a cool thing to do again. All right, on to the show. My guest today is Debbie Reber, an author, speaker, and a self-described parenting activist, who's also the founder of Tilt Parenting, a community for parents raising differently wired children. And her most recent book is Differently Wired, Raising an Exceptional Child in a Conventional World, which came out in 2018. Debbie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Blake. I'm so happy to be here. And it's been an honor for me to be on your podcast also, which we'll talk about at some point. Uh, I want to start by getting your personal story, beginning with how did you grow up? What was your school experience like? How did your career get started? And then we can jump into your more recent work. Wow. Okay. We're going back. So I grew up in Reading, Pennsylvania, which is, if anyone's played Monopoly, that is the Reading Railroad on the Monopoly board. And uh, I have an older sister. I grew up going to, you know, just the neighborhood public school. I grew up in a family where education was just kind of what you you did. You just went to school and there was not a lot of thought given to the quality of the education or career trajectory or any of that. So I went through public elementary, middle school, high school. I was an athlete. So for me, that was my driver. I was, I ran track and field and, and had aspirations of being competitive at the college level and I ended up going to Penn state university, 
because my parents and my sister and my uncles and my grandparents and everyone went to Penn State. So that's where I went and ran track for a year and then um, kind of found my way um, as a student and as a person graduated, uh, moved to New York City after that. And then I began kind of a crazy bunch of different careers, which we can go into more detail. But I will just say, I was a terrible student. I'm just going to put that out there up front. <laughs> terrible. You student. anticipated my next question. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. but you went to Penn State. That's not a horrible college. You you must have been able to perform. Yeah, I was one of those kids who, you know, I tested into the gifted program when I was in second grade. I still don't, you know, really quite know why, but because I was very disorganized, I was a chatterbox. I was disruptive. I was disorganized. I was the classic underachiever. I was very into my social life and my running and the theater and chorus and all of those things. And I think all my activities helped me get into college. My GPA was kind of a mess. And I will just say that my senior poll, I was voted best excuse maker and what was the, oh, class clown. There you go. That's what I graduated high school known as. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and so you said your grades weren't the best and you really excelled in, in the extracurriculars, the sort of uh, stuff outside the norm. Uh, but did school make sense to you growing up? Uh, you said that you were just expected to go to regular school. So there was that sort of family pressure. But did you ever think that there was a different way to do things? Did you have any awareness of alternatives to the mainstream at that age? I don't think so. I think I always saw school as something I just had to get through to get to the good stuff. I grew up in a pretty small, even though I was Reading was a city, my school was a smaller, more rural school. I felt like I just could not wait to to leave home and start my real life. So for me, it was just this boring thing I had to get through. I don't think I even knew that alternative schools existed. The only private school I know of was the Catholic school that parents sent their kids if they got into trouble in public school. So mm -hmm. I just really wasn't aware um, about what actually existed because it just wasn't something that my family, my parents had grew up knowing about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You and I have very similar upbringings in this regard. Oh, interesting. What was college like for you? What did you study and how did it go for you? So I studied communications, a couple of different majors within that. And, and I will say that going from a school, I think my class had about 150 students in it, my senior class. And then I went to Penn State, which has about 50,000 students. I was 17 when I went to college and it was a lot. And I got very involved in track and my friends and going to parties and school in terms of classes for at least the first two years were just something I had to do in order to afford my social life and <laughs> be able to do the other things I wanted to do. And it wasn't until it was the summer after my junior year, I got an internship at NBC News in New York City. By that point, I decided I wanted to you know, do something in broadcast journalism. I had seen the movie Broadcast News. I really wanted to be Holly Hunter. Uh, the, the lead producer in that movie. Mm -hmm. And I spent a summer working at NBC News and I 
got a glimpse of my future and uh, that changed everything. I came back and I was a completely new student. I went from probably below a two point average to, you know, my next semester, I got like a 3.95. I just, I just shifted my priorities. It was like really a light switch went off because I saw a purpose in what I was doing. Hmm. Was there a clear light at the end of the sort of abstract educational tunnel? Like, like this is something amazing that I could be doing if I don't screw it up here in college. Yeah, I think I just, I'm one of those people who is never content with where I'm at. And so having this very kind of clear idea, like, oh, I can get a job working here after school. I'm going to have my own apartment in Manhattan and I'm going to do this. And I just had this whole picture um, laid out for me. And that was highly motivating for me. And suddenly I cared about my grades and I cared about Mm. those, those things. And, and I was also, you know, when you're later on in college, you're doing more specific work. So I was taking classes about, media ethics and, you know, just things that really sparked me as opposed to kind of, you know, I think my freshman year, I took like rocks for jocks, right. Which was like the, uh, the geology class that everyone took. Cause it was an easy C or whatever. Um, so as I got more focused on my area of interest, I got more interested and, and excited about doing that work. So anyone who spends a little bit of time Google stalking you soon realizes (laughs) that you have, you have so many different hats that you wear. Like I I bet that you have the most fame from writing differently wired, but you've written more than what a dozen books previous to this Mm -hmm. uh, about teenagers, largely uh, about women, especially, but you've also written a book about running. Mm -hmm. You're also a writing and publishing coach you're a certified life coach. You have a long list of uh, accomplishments and certifications. <laughs> like, help me make sense of all this, Debbie. Like, maybe continue with the narrative from what happened after college and, and what was your trajectory? Well, I did pursue that career in, in you know, broadcast news. Actually, I should say this summer after my senior year, I lived in Mexico for a summer. I taught a kindergarten class to kids who couldn't afford to go to school during the regular year. I had this kind of Peace Corps side to me. I That was an area I wanted to pursue, ended up following a boyfriend to New York. So I decided to, to work on the, the news piece. And and so I, I wasn't able to break into kind of one of the bigger news magazines that I had hoped like a 60 minutes or 20, 20 or something like that. Um, but I did get a job working for a relief and development organization doing documentary production. And that was an incredible couple of years. It was CARE, if anyone's heard of CARE. Um, it's been around for a long time since World War II. And as part of that, I got to travel to Somalia to do a documentary during the, you know, the humanitarian crisis there in the early 90s. Um, I went from there to UNICEF and spent four years producing documentaries and PSAs there um, in animation and child's rights issues. I really loved doing that kind of work. But then I kind of made a big pivot and moved into kids TV. I kind of took the expertise I had gained through producing these animation uh, campaigns for UNICEF and those relationships. And I moved into kids TV. So that entered phase two of my career. 
And and just as a landmark, what year are we in roughly here when you pivoted into kids TV? It was 1998. End of, yeah, 1998. Great time for kids television. Great time. It was because as my husband, who actually works in kids TV right now, which is so funny, um, because that was not his background, but he reminded me that it's the 25th anniversary of Blue's Clues. And that was the show I worked on 25 years ago, which I cannot believe. It feels like it was a few years ago. Um, But so I got to do work on that show at Nickelodeon and write a ton of Blue's Clues books. And that was kind of my first taste of the publishing industry and what it feels like to see our book in a bookstore. And um, that definitely planted a seed for me. Okay. And what did that seed germinate into? When did you start focusing on teenagers and young women? Well, the, I will say that once I had done a bunch of Blue's Clues books, I thought to myself, well, gosh, if I can write for kids, I can write for adults. And, and I was and still am a runner. And I just decided I'm going to pitch a book on running for women because at the time there was really nothing except for a book by Joan Samuelson, who was a, you know, um, Olympic marathoner, not very relatable to most everyday women. And so I figured out, I spent a year writing a book proposal for a book that called Run for Your Life. And I finished it in 1999 and I found an agent and she somehow sold this book. And that was my first kind of foray into, oh, I can have an idea. I can figure out how it will work, present it and try to find a home for it. And because, so that book came out in 2002, but throughout my whole kind of career up to that point, I was also always volunteering for teen or uh, organizations. Like when I lived in New York in the nineties, I volunteered for a place called Safe Space, which was a non-residential shelter for homeless teens in New York, many of whom were um, transgender, HIV positive. It was a really marginalized group. I was passionate about that community. And then years later, I helped to found a mentoring organization for at-risk teen girls in Los Angeles. And this was kind of my passion work because I felt like I was still a recovering teenager. And so after the success of writing and publishing the running book for women, I decided to take those writing skills, organizational skills, and really pivot into trying to support teenagers. And so I made that transition in about 2003. Just to quickly get a a sense of how many pivots you've had, are we talking a single digit number of pivots in your life, double digit, triple digits? How many pivots, Debbie? Oh my gosh. I really, I think probably between eight and 10. (laughs) That's a, that's a very respectable number of pivots. Yeah. I don't know what that Uh, says about me, but I, I have a lot of things that I'm multi-passionate. That's what I would say. Multi-passionate. Well, the focus of this episode will eventually be on differently wired young people and the school system and homeschooling. But I feel like this is such uh, an important part of, of your story and, and probably a good anchoring point for a lot of parents who might be listening to this. So you start writing these books about teenagers founded in your, your volunteer experience with teenagers. What are these books about? What are you trying to help? Uh, I feel like I spent so many years as, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, my 
teen years, I was very unfocused on things I spent. I, I was focused on social and, and athletics, but I really felt like I was failing in so many other areas. And, um, and I made a lot of poor decisions as a teenager because of low self-esteem or low self-worth or just not really having mentors that I could look to. And so I felt really inspired to provide teenagers with what I wish I had had. I feel like I wasted a lot of time. Yeah. If you'll allow me, sure. would you mind giving one or two specific examples of how you screwed up as a teenager? I don't want to dredge up painful memories here, but I, I'm genuinely curious. I just, um, gosh, such a good question. I mean, as a teenager, I, I just feel like I was focused on the wrong things. I, I was young for my age. I, um, or for my grade, I should say, I was young for my grade. I was petite. I was never really taken seriously. And so I think that trying to get attention in ways that, you know, being the class clown, um, you know, being the sarcastic one, always going for the joke and never really putting what I actually wanted first. I don't know if I can think of specific examples, but I definitely um, didn't feel great about myself and I would compensate for that in, in other ways. And, and I didn't have the, the support in my family to really show me that, Hey, you have value and you have worth and you get to, stand up for yourself or you get to um, decide what, what boundaries are not okay to cross for you. I didn't have that. And so I feel like I, I didn't have good boundaries and I, I didn't stand up for myself in situations where I really wish I had, if that Mm. helps. Yeah, no, that, that definitely helps. Okay. So what kind of books emerged from, from this meditation on, on helping teens (laughs) and maybe helping your, your former self, yeah, so I wrote a couple of proposals that I never quite sold. Um, but the the first thing that I did was I ended up getting this opportunity to create a three book series with uh, HCI Health Communications, and they're the publishers of the Chicken Soup for the Teenage Soul. So I created a book series called The Real Deal for them. One was based on social life, one was based on school, and one was based on more difficult challenges. And so I curated stories from teenagers, and then also wrote a lot of additional content around those areas. And that was a really, that was crazy. I was, I did three books in a year and a half while I also was giving birth to a child. So it was a kind of a busy time in my life. Wow. Yeah. And, um, and then the books I did after that, the next book was a book on career exploration for teen girls to really have a, a mentor and know this is, what this job actually is like. You maybe shouldn't choose a career based on a movie or TV depiction of someone, but rather what is a good fit for who you are and how you operate in the world. That was my Mm -hmm. first kind of book that I had pitched for teens and sold. Wow. I love this. Uh, I feel drawn towards writing for teenagers. And I often think about how much this connects to what I felt like may have been missing in terms of guidance or opportunities uh, in my life as a teenager in public school. Uh, it's interesting to hear you taking a parallel path, a, a much more, 
let's say, a productive, voluminous path <laughs> when it comes to actually publishing books. Um, okay, I want to move us toward uh, the modern day where you, at some point, uh, pitch a book uh, and are successful in publishing a book about neurodiversity, about differently wired kids. Like, what, what brought you to that point in life? Well, as I mentioned, when I was working on those chicken soup books, I, I became a mother and gave birth to a son. So not a daughter that was unexpected right there. Cause I was pretty sure my life's work was teen girls, but apparently it, I needed to pivot again. And so, you know, I raising a, a child who over the years we realized is neurodivergent is differently wired and, you know, and I, I'll go into as much as you want um, about that journey, but I knew kind of very early on that at some point I would, again, use that ability I have to share information in an accessible way and kind of take my hard-won lessons or wisdom and share it just to, to support others. I knew I would take those skills and support other parents like me. And that's what I eventually did with Differently Wired. I will say that I pitched Differently Wired before I even created Tilt Parenting and I pitched it more as like a memoir uh, and um, mm -hmm. it didn't sell. And it's, it's really hard actually to pivot in publishing to completely change genres. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I created Tilt and then revisited the proposal a year later and completely reworked it. And I'm really glad actually that the current book is what got published and not the original. Oh, good. And and maybe you did what the publishing industry seems to demand now, which is bring your own platform. Yeah. Uh, you went out and created a community. And so you had some demonstrated evidence mm -hmm. that there are people interested in what you're going to write. Um, I know my my brief forays into the, the world of agents, that's what they've all told me. It's like, well, this is a nice idea how many zeros are behind the number of social media followers? Yeah. <laughs> uh, your total number. Ugh. Yes. <laughs> okay. So let's dive into Differently Wired, which is an excellent book, very clearly written, a great balance of, of memoir, you know, personal story and research and anecdotes from other people. Um, highly readable. And I love the fact that it is, it's half sort of introduction to these broad topics and then half much shorter chapters uh, very actionable, very inspiring, uh, motivating. And so it, it's got something for people who like to go deep into analysis, but also people who are like, what do I do tomorrow? So well done. Uh, I you. hope it continues to sell forever. <laughs> uh, and uh, something that stood out to me from the first half of the book is that you say that one out of every five kids are differently wired. And so there, there's two things I want to dig into here. First of all, where do you get the number one out of five? And second of all, differently wired. Is this a phrase that you came up with or you borrowed from someone else? And, and how do you define it concisely? Well, I'll start with, with that part with differently wired. I cannot lay claim and say I invented that term, but I popularized it. I don't, I must've heard it it's somewhere, but when I started using it, I Googled it and I couldn't find, and it, it wasn't really used in this context um, with any sort of regularity. And I loved it because I was looking for some sort of language to encapsulate neurodivergence on so many different levels, because I, 
I was and am very anti-medicalized jargon, you know, with re- or pathologizing learning differences um, and learning disabilities as, as disorders and, you know, um, epidemics of things. And so I love this idea of, of a phrase that captured all different ways to be neurodivergent, which could be being gifted, having ADHD, uh, being autistic, be having sensory processing issues, having a learning disability like dyslexia or dysgraphia, um, having no diagnosis at all, but, you know, just a child who's highly sensitive or just doesn't kind of thrive in, in some way um, in a kind of a conventional setting. So it's kind of cool because when I created Tilt Parenting, that word, that phrase wasn't being used really at all. And I kept using it with every guest that I had on my podcast and then I'd hear them repeat it. And now it's everywhere. Oh, and that's really exciting. You, you inceptioned everyone. You, you <laughs> <I> did. <laughs> inserted a new meme into the culture. Well done. I did. Thank you. Um, yeah. And then to answer your other question about the one in five, that um, statistic, and first of all, it's way more than that. Um, but I grabbed that initially from understood.org and, and they have that statistic just to represent kids who have what they call learning and attention issues. So learning disabilities and ADHD or ADD, that is one in five, according to them, according to eye to eye, according to the national center on learning disorders. Um, and so I use that cause it feels very safe, but really when you look at all the other ways of being differently wired, it's way more than that. So do you think it's two out of five? I, I won't hold you to this. I'm just curious how how many people in, in your mind, in your experience, talking with a lot of different families, do you fall into this broad category of differently wired? Oh, I'd say like 40%, maybe more. <laughs> yeah. A solid, solid half, perhaps. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, well, this is a great thing about your book. You do a good job of, of normalizing what feels like a, a sort of hidden or shameful thing for a lot of families coming into this world. Uh, something else that you wrote in the book, and I'll just directly quote you here, is the lines of division between neurodifferences aren't so distinct after all. Just ask someone who diagnoses conditions in kids for a living. It's complicated. So why did you make that point? You, you really reinforce that point in the book. Uh, I imagine that when you enter into this world, it does feel like there's this litany of, of different acronyms and very specific uh, diagnoses. And you're saying, ah, they're all kind of in one big bucket. <laughs> well, we as parents, when we've got younger kids and we discover there is something quote unquote going on, right? There's something that we need to pay more attention to. We often are seeking a very concrete diagnosis, not just because that can afford us accommodations or services in school, but because we want answers. We want to, we want to understand what's going on so we can figure out what to do about it. And so many of us are seeking that because we're struggling or we see our kids are struggling. And when you start getting into it and you realize that the overlap between say a profoundly gifted kid, a child on the autism spectrum, a child with ADHD, there's so many similarities. How do you even tease them apart? Um, it, it, there's a book, it's called Misdiagnoses and Dual Diagnoses of Children, something like that. And it just talks about the fact that 
these are very subtle nuances often. And many kids are misdiagnosed. Many kids, you know, their diagnoses move from assessment to assessment. Every three years, they might get a bunch of new acronyms. And Mm. we focus on that so much, but really what we want to do is get to know the individual child and what their unique strengths are and where their areas of challenge are and figure out how can we support those. And so when you start thinking about it that way, yes, the, the label, the diagnosis can be really helpful, but it's not necessarily clear cut. There's no, you know, blood test for a lot of these things. It's very subjective. All right. So Debbie, what are the most common stories or concerns that you run across when you're working with parents who are new to this world? Um, and, and your community, just for reference, is called Tilt Parenting. And it's it's got some interesting uh, uppercase letters, capital T, lowercase i, uppercase L, <laughs> uppercase T. What does that stand for? I, I probably should have figured this out before the show, but illuminate me now, please. It doesn't stand for anything. I'm so what? sorry. So... <laughs> I know it should. The, the, the design look, it's really was the logo designer um, who has the lowercase i and it worked with my logo. But I can tell you the story behind the word, if you'd like yeah, that. So, <laughs> so before we made this big move, I, I, my family and I moved abroad in 2013. We lived in the Netherlands for five and a half years. And before we made that move, we were at the Jersey Shore and my son and I were riding the Tilt-A-Whirl. Do you know that amusement park ride at the, where it kind of whips you around um, in a circle? Sure. The, yeah. The, the vomit-inducing one. Yes. It can yeah. be that. Yes. And so there's a picture someone took of us on the Tilt-A-Whirl where you know, we are holding on for dear life and we've got these huge grins on our faces. We're just excited and thrilled and just anticipating what's going to happen next and just holding on. And there was something about that picture that really captured this sense of throwing out all the rules and um, forging our own path. And that just felt to me like what parenting was, was like at that time. And I started a blog called Tilt a World and where I was just kind of talking about our transition to homeschooling and our move abroad. And, and then when I created Tilt Years Later, that word just still kind of captured so much. And, and then I loved the way the play on words of also just reframing, which is really what Tilt is about, reframing our experiences as parents of these kids. Hmm. And, and Tilt Parenting is your podcast, but it's also your online community. Uh, and so what have you learned from these parents and yeah, what what problems do they come to you with? Well, so many problems. Um, you know, so many of the parents find me when they have a new diagnosis for their child and they are feeling overwhelmed and like they're the only parent going through this and that it's always going to be hard. Often it's because they're in a school situation where their child is not thriving or they're getting in trouble. Their child is emotionally dysregulated all of the time. Um, They may be having really big behaviors at home that can be tough, like meltdowns that are extreme. Let's just say, I call this like, um, it's like an intensive sport when you're parenting a differently wired child. And uh, so school stuff, big meltdowns. And then there's the parent's own fears 
that's huge, right? It's coming to reconcile the idea that the picture these parents had for what their family's life would look like is doesn't it, it doesn't look the same anymore and they have to really figure out how to make that tilt that pivot to leaning into what is actually going on and so many of them are kind of stuck in that place of reality versus what they wanted and they can stay there for a long time uh, unfortunately but so many parents come to me trying to resolve that tension mm. And there are so many resources out there on these subjects, especially resources that have appeared in the past couple of decades. Um, what, what is it that drives a lot of parents to seek out like a, an actual community? You know, what can they not often solve on their own by just reading articles or reading books? Well, it is. Honestly, it's hard to get good information. And in fact, when we were first going through this, when my son was, you know, four or five, he's 16 now there were very few resources available. And the ones that existed, they had a vibe of like, there's something wrong here. You know, there's a problem. Your child needs, mm -hmm. you know, some, some serious intervention. Or as a parent, I felt like, boy, I do not want to be hanging out on these websites. And I, I felt, my husband and I together, felt really isolated. Like no one knew what we were going through. We felt like we are being judged as parents um, for not doing a good job. Um, it was just overwhelming to navigate everything from an IP process to where do you even go for an assessment to, you know, is there even anything going on or are we just failing as parents? And so, Ooh. yeah, that was huge. And, and that's what a lot of parents find because it's not as clear cut for a lot of our kids you know, I talk about this in the book, our pediatrician was like, mm, everything seems fine to me, you know? And, but as parents, Darren and I were like, but it does not feel fine. Like we are not doing well um, at home and our child is not doing well at school. And so you start just doubting yourself and, you know, I didn't know where to go. And, and I think many parents don't know where to start. And so my hope is in creating tilt I really spent a lot of time to design it in such a way that it felt very accessible and positive and optimistic vibe. And like, okay, you're here. You found your people. You belong here. You are part of a huge, awesome community. Our kids rock. They're the most fascinating humans on the planet. And you can totally do this. So that was kind of what I what I wanted to, to help parents experience in creating Tilt. You and I have already had a couple great conversations on your podcast about alternative education, homeschooling, and unschooling. And I'm curious, when did the thought of, of let's say, homeschooling first enter your brain as a like, wow, this is really a possibility for me and my family uh, when you uh, were yeah, raising your family? Well... My son went to kindergarten at a private school in Seattle for highly gifted kids. And we kind of scraped by that year, but it was tough. And we started first grade with a teacher who really did not, let's just say, honor and respect my child's unique learning style. And 
I had a good friend who was an educator who loved our family, loved my child, really saw him for who he was. And she, at that point, said to me one day, Debbie, I think this is a kid who needs to be homeschooled. And I was not interested in that information at the time. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, that is not going to happen because I... I really loved my work. My teen girl writing stuff was really taking off and I liked my time alone and I really enjoyed the time that my child was at school and I just couldn't see how that was going to happen. And it wasn't until another year went by, actually a year and a half, and this opportunity to move abroad popped up and I started researching international schools in Amsterdam. And this same friend very gently said to me, Debbie, you have to homeschool this kid. You're not going to find the right fit in Amsterdam if you couldn't find it in Seattle. And so that's when I I just knew, I was like, yeah, you're right. We need to completely shake things up here. And how old was your son when you started full-time homeschooling? He had just turned nine. Okay. And that continues to this day? No, we did it through the end of eighth grade. And for ninth grade, and he's in 10th grade now, he started going to a school called Fusion Academy. Are you familiar with Fusion? I am basically familiar. Yes. Yeah. So it's it's an individualized one-to-one learning environment. So it's it has a bit of a homeschooling vibe because he gets to move at his own pace with and move as quickly as he can or is able to and really design the curriculum based on his areas of expertise and interest. And it's, it's actually been fantastic. That's wonderful. As far as I know, it's essentially individualized tutoring, uh, unlimited. <laughs> is, is that an accurate one-liner summary of Fusion Academy? Yeah. I mean, I think some people do use it as tutoring and, or there are many kind of full-time students, you know, you create your schedule. And uh, yeah, as I said, it's very, it's so individualized that um, they can really go, the, you know, t- teach the way the child learns. And if the child really wants to design some coding, speaking from experience, some really interesting coding project um, for astronomy, they can do that. So it's, it's kind of the best of both worlds. Good. So I'd love for you to speak broadly about the overlap between the conventional school system and the lives of differently wired kids. Like when does it tend to work? When is there a fit? And when does the friction start to appear? And I know that everyone's different, but I'm curious whether you can say like, you know, around this age or around this grade, there there tends to be more friction uh, or like people who tend to have these kinds of diagnoses tend to struggle more or less. So if you can generalize, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that. Yeah, obviously it changes so much, but elementary school, early elementary in particular is a very tricky time for many of these families because that is when the expectations for how a child should behave or the way that they are going to follow the social cues of other kids as a way of learning behavior, um, that those kids don't necessarily have those same skills. And so 
that's when it starts to stand out like, hmm, this kid is not really going with the program. And so that can be a very difficult time. And just the demands of, you know, transitioning, how many transitions kids in a traditional school system have every day. And so for a child with maybe ADHD who can hyper-focus to have to drop everything to do something completely different when they were really in the zone can be very dysregulating. And at that age, a lot of differently wired kids are socially and emotionally behind their same age peers. So then they can't self-regulate and it comes out as bad behavior. So early elementary is really difficult. Also that for kids with learning disabilities like dyslexia and dysgraphia, they may not have been recognized yet, or maybe they're gifted. And so they've been able to overcompensate you know, for that learning disability, but it's starting to show up in their inability to perform certain tasks. So a lot of stuff happening in that age. And then I would say middle school is where things get really tricky. A lot of these kids have executive function deficits. And so as the stakes get higher and the demands get higher for, you know, homework and juggling multiple projects and a lot of executive function uh, demands, that's when kids who are struggle in that area can really start to fall behind. And, and yeah, just their grades start to slip. And that's when parents start to really freak out because they, they're like, but high school's next. And and what does this mean? You know, and they start kind of worrying about, uh, their child's eventual launch and whether that's going to happen. And what about high school itself? Yeah, so high school is trickier for those same reasons. Um, and gosh, right now, you know, uh, as we're recording this and during COVID, and there's so many parents of high school kids who are worried because the motivation has plummeted. And grades are, have slipped for so many kids. Mental health is uh, suffering and just kind of worried about, you know, what does this mean um, for my child's uh, ability to get into college, to kind of go on to whatever comes next. Um, it's interesting, you know, as parents... Of, of high school kids, they start to, even if they, they are really doing that work of respecting their child as a learner and as a human in their own journey. And then high school, the parents inner voice uh, of concern, um, or this has to happen, or this won't happen, you know, the what ifs plague, plague so many parents. And so they tend to put a lot more demands on their kids. Um, and so the pressure just, just rises. I want to ask about higher education for a moment, and then we're going to circle back and talk about homeschooling and unschooling. Um, In your experience, do differently wired kids tend to feel more at home or thrive more once they get to four-year college, for example? Yeah. I mean, from what I've heard, um, yes and no. A lot of differently wired kids don't do so well at college if they go right away um, for a couple of reasons. One is that, uh, you know, we know that a differently wired student, one of the best things we as parents and teachers can do is help them be really self-aware of 
how they learn and what they need and know how to advocate for themselves. Like that is a huge goal for many of us that our kids graduate high school or, you know, move on with that just deep knowing of what they need and how to get it. And a lot of students, differently wired students, they go to college and they're like, you know what, I think I can do this on my own. And they want to just try it without reaching out to the the university and getting accommodations or support. And a lot of them do not last the first year of school. Um, Mm. If they, especially if they don't take that gap year. And so, um, so that I think gap years are really awesome more than one, even better. Um, But uh, so unfortunately that happens with a lot of students. Um, And then, yeah, other students, especially students who may have felt like they've never really fit in uh, or found their people. Because if you think about the the gifted and profoundly gifted kids and kids who are just like have really maybe obscure interests or deep areas of expertise, they may not find their people in high school um, or when they're teenagers in their community, but at college, when they can finally kind of dive into their areas of interest and they can really find their people. So that can be really successful. Hmm. Yeah. That, that second thing you just said was my, my intuition and my guess, but uh, it's interesting to hear that there is a lot of first year uh, dropout um, for those who just kind of follow the the crowd and, and mm-hmm. go straight into it. And in my experience, working with a lot of unschooled teenagers, um, that there's this moment around age 18 or 19 where a lot of the, the peer cohort is going off to some form of higher education. And that unschooler feels uh, a bit sheepish about not following suit and feels a bit ashamed, perhaps, um, maybe feels you know left behind from a social group. But it seems that because they do have a certain degree of self-knowledge and uh, unconditional support from their parents, they tend to be pretty confident about this decision to postpone college, to to wait a bit longer, see if it's the right choice. And then when they do go at age 20 or 21, for example, uh, they're like superstars. Mm -hmm. They're rock stars there. And all they needed was a few extra years to just sort of patiently take their time, maybe wrap up the the quirky idiosyncratic interests they've been pursuing as as self-directed teenagers and really wrap their head around um, this prospect of, yes, you know, living with this very large community of other people their own age. Uh, and, and when they do it, they're ready for it. Yeah. And uh, I very seldom have inquired into um, yeah, the lives of, of the teenagers I've worked with and whether they have any specific diagnoses. Uh, it just It doesn't interest me. Like It often just doesn't matter at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you get to work with young people in a small group, you have a much better chance of just accommodating everyone's needs, which are fairly obvious if you just spend a little bit of time with them. Um, and so I can't say for sure that the teens I've worked with who postponed college were differently wired, but it sure seems likely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I wish I had waited a couple of years. I, you know, I could have skipped the, the 1.8 grade average, and, you know, and just feeling lost. Uh, I think, I think going to school when you, when it's the right choice for you and you want to be there as opposed to what it's, what is expected, or that's just what you do for any student. Um, 
is the way to go, even if college is the thing to do. And it isn't for everybody, right? That's right. Okay. So coming back to homeschooling, in the book, you wrote that for families with differently wired kids, homeschooling is often the best choice. But you also dive into public school and private school options. But uh, tell me why you think homeschooling might be the best choice for many families. And also uh, touch on unschooling and that sort of spectrum of of structuredness within, uh, sorry, I actually shouldn't say structuredness. I I often rail against that. Uh, The spectrum of consensual education from more parent-driven homeschooling to more learner-driven unschooling. Yeah, I mean... I think because differently wired kids have such unique learning styles and, you know, we talked earlier about the ability to really hyper-focus on things, or there are so many kids who need to move their bodies in order to be creative or, or, or do work, which is not something you could do in a traditional um, classroom often. And so I think there's so many ways that kids either show up as learners or they want to demonstrate their knowledge that are just not acceptable in a mainstream schooling environment. And so, so much time is then spent on getting a child to comply and to to show up in that classroom so that the teacher can manage the, all the students and the child's, you know, unique strengths are often completely overlooked. And on top of that, these kids start to really internalize the idea that there's something wrong with them, uh, that, you know, they're disruptive, they're bad, they're, um, they're not smart. Um, that's what I felt like growing up, um, for sure. Um, and because they're always being corrected. And so in a homeschooling environment, whatever kind, um, I think there's so much more freedom and flexibility. And I'll just share from my own journey. I, you know, I mentioned Ash was nine when we started this, he would have been in third grade. And I did start in a more, I guess, traditional homeschooling way in that, you know, I created, uh, I had spreadsheets, let's just say there were, (laughs) I had plans, you know, there was a every day a schedule and we're going to do math and we'll read this book. And I tried to kind of micromanage it. And over time, it, it, it took us a while to get there, but, you know, we just kept moving closer and closer to this more truly collaborative model where um, by the end, you know, I homeschooled him for six years. Those last couple of years were very much designed by Asher, his areas of interest. Um, we kind of made up our own rules. And uh, for me, I think that's certainly what worked well for him I don't know if it was if it was technically unschooling. Um, parts of his day were very much uh, unschooling. He's very self-driven now, and I, I think that is something that benefits differently wired kids by and large because they do have these really obscure interests and and strengths, and to let them just play in that space is a huge gift to them. Mm-hmm. But Debbie. Yeah. My kid has special needs. They need a specialist. Therefore, <laughs> a reading specialist, a learning specialist, someone who's certified and trained in only a public school or a very expensive private school can offer such specialists. Why would you dare suggest that I try to do this in-house? 
Well, I always encourage people to think about their why, the why for everything that they're doing. And so many of our decisions are driven by this desire to get our kids back on this path that we think they should be on. And um, that's not to say that we don't want to get our kids support in certain areas or bring on a tutor or focus in different areas, depending, you know, if a child has dyslexia, you know, there are ways to support a child in, um, in knowing how to navigate that learning disability. Um, so we want to give our kids that support, but it can look so many different ways. I think many parents get very tunnel vision uh, that there's only one way to do this or that things have to happen by a certain, you know, year or age. And I'm just a big fan of throwing out the timeline altogether and trusting in our kids' ability to learn something. I mean, this is, we're on the same page, I'm sure with this, you know, when they're motivated to do something, they can learn something really quickly and really focusing instead on building up their sense of competency and love of learning and, you know, getting curious about who they are. That's where I would want to put all my energy. Yeah, we are 100% on the same page here. Uh, have you had any parents in your Tilt Parenting community say, I tried that unschooling thing and it was a horrible flaming failure for my kid and my family? Yeah, I have. And usually comments like that, or when I hear from parents with that sentiment, it is centered around screen time. That is something I'm sure you get asked this a lot. And um, parents really struggle with their child spending a lot of time on the computer. In fact, I just had this conversation with a parent. I don't remember even in what context, but you know, when I dug deeper and asked, like, what is this child doing on the computer? It was actually some pretty incredible stuff. And so part of this again is us as parents constantly, you know questioning the reasons that we are thinking this has to happen by this time, or this is bad because of this. And instead really just look at what is our child actually doing, you know, giving it a lot of time and trying to find ways to support our kids growth, uh, personal growth, sense of autonomy, self-awareness, those executive functions. So many of those things can be weaved into really anything that they're into. And there's so much cool stuff online. So much. So of course you want to spend time in front of a screen. Totally. Yes. Uh, okay. If the school system evaporated tomorrow and let's say was completely replaced by consensual self-directed learning centers, um, in what ways do you think differently wired kids might still stand out? So this is my way of asking you, how much of what we call, you know, like learning differences, for example, uh, are caused by this, this large institution of traditional school? And how much of this w- would still be there if we didn't have conventional school? Such an interesting question. I believe that many of the challenges are because of the expectations we're or demands we're placing on our kids that are not in alignment with the way that they experience the world or learn. And which again, going back to your other question about college and beyond, um, you know, many of these kids do do well when they aren't 
outside of the confines of that. Um, I think where it shows up, in addition to, again, kids with learning disabilities like dyscalculia and dysgraphia and some other things where they'll need some specific strategies to, to work on those. Um, I think that it's the social, emotional areas where these kids would still stand out. Um, just reading others, uh, social cues, um, sensory issues, you know, just things, things like that um, in, in group settings. But in terms of the way that they learn, um, yeah, I think, I think that, uh, that they would do pretty, pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, I believe you. Uh, something you bring up in the book are, are claims of overdiagnosis of, um, of these various um, yeah, disorders, as we call them. Um, and the idea that something like ADHD is, is largely a fabrication. This is what, what critics uh, may say. And, and I think there's, there's often an analogy drawn to like the world of, of diet. So for example, when I grew up going to summer camp in the 90s, everyone just ate the same <laughs> food that came from Cisco that all had gluten in it. There was maybe like one vegetarian out of a camp of 50 kids there. And if you go to a kid's summer camp today, it's, you know, an endless number of iterations of dietary needs uh, that, that are being catered to. Uh, the infamous gluten-free vegan has always been a thorn in my side when I run international programs for, <laughs> for teenagers. It's very hard to accommodate a gluten-free vegan in Argentina. Yeah. Let me just put that <laughs> on the record. Um, and so what do you make of, of these, uh, these criticisms that, that, that a lot of this isn't just, it's just not that real. These kids are just like being too sensitive and just need to kind of like toughen up and, we're, we're just letting all of these diagnoses uh, just proliferate so that kids can have more time to perform on standardized tests and get special accommodations and everyone can feel special. That kind of critic, what do you do with that kind of person? How do you respond? Oh boy, such a complicated question because, you know, as we were just discussing, many of the symptoms, for lack of a better word, uh, that a student with ADHD um, and other learning differences um, will show up, will be more highlighted because of the environment that they're in, right? So, um, you know, I talk about this in the book that um, I, I, I was having a conversation with my son. He was when we were homeschooling and, and he was like, yeah, I don't have a problem with the fact that I like to spin around in circles when I am, you know, working on math. It, the only people who had problems were my teachers. And so um, there is that, <laughs> that kind of disconnect, right? That the, the, the problem is because of the environment. Um, and there are many kids, right, who have, like, I saw this with my own eyes. I'm like, oh, yeah, you are someone who needs to move and you should be able to move. And so to get that diagnosis is really helpful um, for context to ensure that he can be supported in different environments. Um, so I think the, the problem is this kind of is societal expectations, right, about and the stigmas associated with things. The idea that, you know, even ADHD being a disorder, right, it is just a different way of 
learning, processing information of moving through the world. It's not a bad thing. It creates challenges because of the way that society is set up. It also has a lot of negative negative stigma around it. And that kind of further fuels this idea that this is a diagnosis we don't want to get, or it's not really real, or, you know, let's push back on this. So I don't know if this is answering your question. I just think it is, you know, I'm really just a, a proponent of trying to erase the idea that normal even exists. You know, there is no one way to be and to show up and to learn and to think and to process. And which is why going back to the beginning, I think 40, 50% or more, like I, normal is not a thing and Mm -hmm. we need to stop, you know, assigning negative uh, value to neuro neurodivergence and instead just support the human that, that we've got. So I want to dwell on this just for a, a moment longer, because this is something that that I end up pushing back against with, with critics of large amounts of self-directed learning. Um, so one of these same critics might say, to function in the adult workplace, as we know it today, and as we can predict it will exist in the next decade, requires a certain level of, for example, uh, self-control, the ability to to sit your ass down at a desk and stare at a screen for eight hours. Um, And so this is what we're trying to do with your kid through this institution we call school is to like properly habituate them towards something which is in their best interest as an adult who wants to be independent and, you know, financially self-sufficient. Um, when people say, well, there's a certain re- economic reality out there, which you do have to conform to. And this comes up with unschooling discussions all the time. It's like, yes, w- I philosophically agree with you that everyone is different and unique and can never be put in a box, but still there are these realities that need to be adapted to. How do you respond to that? Like your kid needs to make a living too. So as we're having this conversation, I take notes. So I know what I'm going to answer. And I just wrote the word no and circled it. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I just don't buy that at all. I think that is 100% fear-based response to, to, you know, uh, to the idea that the future looks different than what I thought it should look like for my child. You know, we are all unique. There are no rules to life. I mean, yes, we have to eat. We have to, you know, treat people with kind, you know, there are those rules, but we get to forge our own path. We all do. And every child is on their own journey. It is no one's, you know, responsibility or job to make their journey look a certain way. We are to nurture them and give them the tools they need to forge their own path, whatever that looks like. And again, hopefully they know how to take care of themselves. They know how to treat people with kindness. They're ethical, you know, they're good people. Um, Raising good humans is what we're doing here. But beyond that, it's their journey. And I just completely disagree <laughs> with the idea that um, anyone needs to uh, to be able to thrive in every environment. I mean, part of us raising these kids so they really know who they are on a deep level is so that they can 
create a path for themselves where they can spend as much time as possible in their area of strength, in their area of flow and love the hell out of their lives. Right. Yes. Right. Uh, And as I like to say with, with the criticisms of unschooling, if there was some large epidemic of unemployable adult unschoolers out there, I'm confident, I can't be hundred percent sure, but I'm very confident that I would have heard about it by now. <laughs> and that, that does not exist. They all seem to find their way at least, you know, relevant to their peers in the same area and the same socioeconomic bracket. They seem to do just as well as anyone else when it comes to financial self-sufficiency. So yeah, I are mean- you aware of any, of any such, uh, you know, cover up any, any big conspiracy? <laughs> I am not. I am okay. not. I just think it's very scary to throw out the rules. You know, it is scary because, you know, fear is safety, right? And um, playing small feels safe. All of those things make us feel safe, but that is not, you know, what can enable us to live our most meaningful and purposeful lives playing small. Like, so, so much of this is about, and the work that I do is helping parents kind of get out of their own way so that they can show up for their kids and really empower them to be able to create the life that they want. And this is why we're having this conversation, Debbie, because you just (laughs) neatly encapsulated the whole ethic of self-directed learning right there. (laughs) Awesome. Um, I want to ask you one more question. I love cross-cultural comparisons and analyses. And so what was it like raising your son in the Netherlands? And if you can speak more broadly about Europe, that'd be great, but feel free to just zone in on, on the Netherlands. And I'm curious in the differences you observed between uh, Dutch and U.S. parenting cultures and also how they discuss or, or treat differently wired kids in the Netherlands. Yeah, such a good question. So the culture in the Netherlands for parenting, it's it's much more hands-off parenting. You know, if you look at uh, those articles, the happiest kids in the world, like the, the Dutch and the Nordic countries, they're always way up there. And the kids do lead pretty independent lives. Parents tend to be pretty hands-off, which was a little shocking, to be honest. I remember <laughs> one of the first like playgrounds we went to, um, you know, as I said, Asher was nine and there were some other kids on the slide and they were like dropping F-bombs and not being very nice to my kid. And I was like, where are the parents? Like I was, <laughs> I was a little outraged and I was like, oh, they're, they're like, they just let the kids kind of fend for themselves, which um, I had to adjust to. And it kind of grew to appreciate Um there were playgrounds there where in the US you would have had to sign, you know, 20 waivers um, to allow your child to play there because mm-hmm. there were like hammers and nails and rusty sharp corners everywhere and kids could just build <laughs> stuff and go on a boat and make rafts and um it was awesome and uh and a little scary, but um, but still awesome. And so I really enjoyed that sense of just freedom of letting kids kind of do their thing. They tend to bike independently, maybe several kilometers to school by the time they're like Mm -hmm. 10 and 11. Um, And so that was just really interesting for me, uh, especially in the U S where, you know, you read articles about 
people calling the cops on kids who are walking home from school two blocks, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. So I liked that. Um, I liked that sense of, of kids just really having a lot of agency and over their, their lives in that way. Um, And I think the same, you know, I, I observed that just zooming out to, to Europe as well. Definitely not a lot of helicopter parenting that I witnessed and, um, kids just having more free reign and that, that worked. Like I, I really aspired to that in our own life. Cause that jives with my philosophy. Um, mm-hmm. in terms of their views on neurodivergence, it's really interesting in the Netherlands specifically, they are known for being very, you know, independent in terms of, you know, they were the first country in the world to legalize gay marriage many, many, many years ago. Um, they have this very uh, individualistic, um, anything goes reputation. And at the same time, they really like everyone to be the same. And I mm. found that fascinating. And so what that looks like is um, downplaying a lot of uh, giftedness or neurodivergence, um, really not wanting to provide extra support because they want everyone to kind of be the same and um, not really providing what I, you know, certainly not to the level of support that schools in the U S and, and some other countries um, maybe in the UK, uh, Canada might have for differently wired learners. I think they're a little bit behind um, in terms of their ability to support beyond autism um, ADHD learn. Uh, they're just not so great with that yet, in my opinion. Hmm. Well, for any Dutch listeners out there, there you have it. The, the cold heart analysis. <laughs> um, Debbie, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for coming on. Is there anything I can look forward to hearing about in terms of anything that you're coming out with? Uh, any, any books, any communities, anything new on the horizon? Well, I will say that I've just delivered a book proposal to my agent um, in this space. I, I don't want to tell specifics about what it's about, but um, hopefully next time we talk, I can say that I'm working on a new book for parents of differently wired kids. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, I, I will sit on the edge of my seat. <laughs> I'm sure you will. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Debbie Rebert, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Blake.